Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining Turning a Moment into a Movement. I am um, Jay Love (laughs) from the Justice for Gerard Movement. Justice for Gerard Movement was birthed today. My son Gerard was wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't do. He actually went to prison for that crime and he's back home. And so we're still advocating and educating about wrongful convictions. As you see on the bottom of the screen, um, www.change.org slash justice for Gerard is where you can go and sign the petition, read about his story and share with others. So thank you for joining us. Also, we're asking um, if you can please share. Share the video with your this um, platform with your friends and others. And we also want you to know that um, we are on, also we're on um, podcast platform. You can listen to us on Anchor, Breaker, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, I, I, and iHeart podcast platforms and subscribe to those. So just in case you're not able to uh, watch us live, you can um, always listen to us. So thank you for joining us. So today, um, let's bring in our panel members before we even get started. Greetings. Greetings. Hello. Oh, my goodness. Jay, I am so glad to be here today. I'm Reverend Tia Littlejohn, and uh, I'm telling you, we have got to stay at the forefront of helping turn these wrongful convictions around and really shining the light so that the community can be educated, so they can make decisions that are going to benefit them and, and and make a new story, you know. I believe that uh, my purpose is to help demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is at hand now, that we have access now to answers and solutions. Uh, While I'm working on this doctorate, I continue to be at the forefront helping uh, Bishop Bernadette Jefferson out in the Flint area with reparations for Flint. And um, uh, also definitely with you and turning a a moment into a movement, mm-hmm. and I continue to uh, minister with the transforming love community, spiritual community there, uh, and under the, of course, wonderful Reverend Shahira Stevens, Dr. Reverend Shahira Stevens. Yeah. So I'm so <laughs> excited to be here today. I, I um, you know, daily work with autistic children and um, got a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire, one would say. 
uh, kind of minimized and starting to make some changes. So you'll see some recent, you know, well, changes in the near future. Uh, so I'm excited that we are here as a team together. And I believe that we can make things happen when we come together. So thank you so much for having me on today. Yes, thank you, Reverend Tia. Thank you for being with us. And next, hello. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Hi, Attorney Hugo Matt. Good, good to see you and good to be with you. You know, I'm, I'm in the presence of stars right here. I still want some autographs, Reverend Tia. You know, so <laughs> you know, so you know, so, you know. I know I'm serious. I'm, I'm so proud. Everybody just, just exploding with popularity and vibrance, and I'm, I'm just trying to hold on. So I'm here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Hugo Mack is my name. Uh, primarily a criminal defense attorney, but really more of an advocate for justice in the courtroom, uh, whether that be the prosecutor, the defense, defense attorney, uh, or the court, you know, and I'm dedicated to the cause of freedom and equity, equality in the courtroom, uh, based on my years in the courtroom, countless thousands of defendants that I've defended, over 800 battered and abused women that I've defended, uh, being the difference between them in jail and the penitentiary, I'm very proud of that. Um, been reprimanded soundly by judges uh, for standing up and, and saying that this is wrong, what has happened, been threatened uh, by the state police. I mean, all the litanies of things you would think a target would experience, I've experienced, you know. So I understand wrongful conviction. I understand paying a debt you don't owe. But I understand even more. The people closest to the problem are the ones that have the answers, okay? So, so, so that's why I'm here. Personally and professionally, I've been very close to the problem, very close. So I want to try to put my answer in, uh, you know, with the body of people that I'm working with. I'm so honored to be on this panel. So I'm just excited, uh, uh, Tia and, and Jay Love. I'm just blessed to be here, and, and thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, thank you so much, Attorney Hugo Matt. People calling me, asking for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, um, Trisha is having technical difficulties today. Something's going on, so I don't think she's going to join us. If she if she does, she knows how to pop in. So we're going to go straight into um, our guest who's here. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Taylor, how are you? I'm amazing. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, it's really an honor to be a part of this amazing panel. I've watched you guys. Um, I truly um, admire you guys for all of your great work that you continue to do, all of your wisdom um, that you continue to pour into the community and just fighting a good fight. I truly appreciate that. Uh, my name is Taylor Pennington, and I just happen to have the honor of being married to an amazing man named Willie William Billy Pennington. <laughs> and um, William has been wrongfully incarcerated for the past 11 years, and he is still incarcerated for a crime that he did not do. Uh, so I have been advocating and I have been pushing for his case to be reopened. I have been coming up against all things that lead to mass incarceration and that contribute to wrongful incarceration. Uh, so I guess you can say that um, 
my my fight has become a fight that is completely rooted and dedicated and and just people and fighting for freedom and i wanted to share a a quote by martin luther king that says if you have not found something that you are willing to die for then you are not fit to live and that is truly a quote that it's a sharp quote, quote, it cuts to the core, you know what I mean? And that's what it was meant to be because we really need to cut some people and shake some people up so that they can join this fight and join this movement because I don't want to see more people be like me and wait until they are directly impacted before they actually join the fight. Don't wait till the injustice comes to your door. Join the fight, right? Because we are all impacted whether we know it or not. So again, I just thank you guys for having me and I'm super excited about the conversation that we're gonna have today. Thank you. You're welcome. Wonderful. You're here as well, Taylor. Um, I wanted to put up Billy's information Yes. Oh, that's my <laughs> look at ain't he fine, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the petition number. Um, if you text that number, you can sign the petition. Uh, we are collecting petitions just to uh, present it to the state legislators. Right. Uh, we're going beyond the uh, local elected officials so that we can get his case reopened. So please sign the petition. Yeah, right. so we're gonna, right. um, we're gonna show that as we go on through um, today, um, so people can connect with you, and also we're gonna talk about some of the things that you're doing in Lima, Ohio. <laughs> but I, I just wanted to go back to last week because we were talking about the um, bail reform and the Black Mother bailout that's gonna to continue to go on. I think through um, from now, throughout um, Juneteenth, um, I know I saw that they bailed out at least three miles from Genesee County. And I don't know how many from Wayne County, but they're, they're doing some great work. But uh, a reason why I wanted to talk about it because um, 11 years ago, um, Khalif um, Broder, Browder was um, arrested, and I want to show you guys. This is Khalif, and he was arrested um, or detained for possibly um, stealing a backpack. And because his mom couldn't afford the three thousand dollar bail, he ended up spending like three years at Rikers Island. Um, eventually, um, Khalif, um, was set, um, released. Um, but he had like over 30 cases, um, uh, 30, um, not 30 cases, but I guess 30 court appearances. Uh, attorney Hugo, Matt, <laughs> 30 court appearances. Is that? Um, that's not uh, normal. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm somewhat familiar with that case, and that is a that is a case of the system feeding off of itself. You know, uh, for for injustice. You know, uh, people get put in a situation that they shouldn't be in in the first place. And I, I can tell you right now, jails and prisons are ticket traps, particularly a prison, by the way. 
it is so easy to garner a misconduct ticket within the Michigan Department of Corrections, you would not believe, okay? Uh, just simply saying to an officer, say, hey, look, man, you don't, you don't have to you don't have to talk to me like that. I heard what you said. Oh, you're insolent, okay? And see, part of the problem that they've had is when you fight these like major misconduct tickets, they don't have an independent judge, all right, hearing these cases. They've got hearing officers that are hired by the Department of Corrections, all right? The, this the system as as it existed when I was there. And so these hearing officers are there to maintain their jobs, okay? So you start finding a bunch of people not guilty of these misconduct tickets, you shine a bad light on the Department of Corrections itself because you're saying that officers not bringing charges that are substantiated. So the pressure is on these judges to find people guilty. I cannot tell you the thousands of people that I tried to help fight misconduct tickets and was resoundingly resoundingly retaliated against by the Michigan Department of Corrections. It's called diesel therapy. You know, you cause a problem here, we're going to ship your butt up north. That's what we're going to do. Okay. So, but, but in any event, what I'm saying is with this young man's case, particularly being young, it is so easy to get caught up in a punitive system that is not of their making. They're, they're really a victim of it. And then, you know, that adds to punishment, it adds to segregation, you know, it adds to diminution of privileges and you know depending if the man had had a mental situation he was dealing with because of his troubles you know uh, all that can add to extending a prison sentence millenniums beyond what it, what it actually should be so no i understand and uh did, didn't that young man commit suicide or he he, he died he committed suicide he never was um convicted of anything they end up um eventually dismissing it but uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to show a clip, you guys. Oh, okay. Okay. Good evening. Um, today is May 15, 2010. Uh, the time is now about 7.47 in the evening. I just need to get my story out. And you are Mr. Khalif Browder, is that correct? Yes. I was going home from a party. 911 operator 1719, where's the emergency? Two male black guys, they took my brother, uh, Bookback. There was a guy saying that I robbed him. They said, we're going to take you to the precinct. Did you rob somebody in the beginning part of May? Mr. No. The time is now 10 to 8. This interview is concluded. They said most likely we're going to let you go home. Like this. But then, I never went home. Khalif is my son. I know what he went through. through a lot with him. I felt like I was done wrong. I felt like something needed to be done about this. If I just say that I did it, nothing's going to be done about it. I didn't do it. No justice is served. Nobody hears nothing at all. I had to fight. You want me to walk away like it's okay? It's not okay. 
I lost my childhood. I lost my happiness. They destroyed my life, my family's life. This is supposed to be the greatest city in the world. And we are supposed to trust in this justice system. Where's the justice? Yes, so um, he spent a thousand um, days on Rikers Island and 700 of those he was um, in solitary confinement. Um, he had um, his mother went there every day. You know, she he had a bail of $3,000 um, for a book bag, but I guess he had something uh, else on his record. He was joyriding with some kids or something. So they ended up giving him like a $3,000 bail. And because his mother couldn't afford $3,000, he was uh, on Riker Island for that long period of time, three, almost three years. And uh, as you watch the story as it goes on, it talks about the justice system there and how there was a certain judge that she was um, a judge that when people didn't take a plea, she was the judge that make them take a plea. And she would do all kinds of things because she was known for making people take pleas. And I just feel it's really sad that this is the kind of system that um, we're dealing with that, you know, force people into pleas and, um, and we're going to get to that plea, the guilty plea deal, because of Billy's um, case. You know, wasn't he um, very young, um, Taylor? Yes, Billy was 17 years old, um, 18 years old by the time his uh, case came adjudication, and he uh, he ultimately took a plea deal. So I was familiar um, with Khalif uh, Browder's case. Um, I knew that he had been on Rikers Island for three years um, prior to any conviction uh, for a book bag. That was about the extent that I knew. And I knew that he eventually committed suicide or took his own life when he um, came home. Uh, so I watched the, the documentary uh, when you sent it to me. And I was kind of holding off on watching the documentary just because of the trauma and the perpetuating trauma that that causes. Because, again, anytime I see that or, or hear of stories like that, I, I immediately go to my husband and then my own son. So uh, but just to kind of put... Is it okay if I give a brief summary of the uh, okay, of okay. the documentary for people who may not have watched it or, or maybe won't even get an opportunity to watch it? But Khalif uh, was 16 years old. Uh, he his his story is very similar to Billy in multiple ways and ways that he grew up in a in a small inner city community that was driven by uh, by uh, poverty. It was very poor, um, and he made some bad decisions as a juvenile as a child. So he did have a prior record as a child. Uh, and when the uh, accusation came about the book bag, 
they just took one eyewitness statement saying, yeah, that's him. I think they, they're wearing the same clothes. That's him. He was taken to jail. He was given this $3,000 bond. And because his mother could not make this bond, he sat on Rikers Island for three years. Those the 30 court dates that you mentioned earlier, those were all court dates that were like preliminary hearings. He kept going mm -hmm. to court, not for reoccurring uh, occasions. He kept going to court to have this one case uh, <laughs> resolved. And every time he went to court, the prosecutors would postpone it because they, they were waiting to produce the witness. They were waiting to get the evidence, so on and so forth. So they kept postponing the court date. They drug out the entire judicial process. Um, and during that time, he had to remain incarcerated. During that time, while you're fighting your case on the outside in the courts, he's also uh, dealing with all of these uh, abusive situations inside the institution. Again, this is another part of Billy's stories, right? While we're fighting for his exoneration, we have a whole nother monster that we're dealing with within the institution with the correctional officers. And to be very honest, we try so hard to not even focus on that because we want to get him home. But there's so much corruption that takes place inside the the actual institution because as attorney hugo mack mentioned earlier there is a whole structure of its own mm -hmm. there is absolutely no accountability within the correctional facilities there's no one to hold those correctional officers mm -hmm. accountable to what they do i have made multiple calls i record every phone call i have uh, sent uh recordings to attorneys i have spoken with civil rights attorneys when i tell you the correctional institution fight is a whole nother monster. It is a monster. Um, but with Khalif's, with Khalif's uh, situation, he spent over a year in solitary confinement. He spent over a year of his three year, two years, he spent two years of his three year sentence in solitary confinement. That's right, because he did nine months and then did 14. And what happened is he began to have a psychological break throughout that solitary confinement. So when he came home, being a 16 year old, mind already not fully developed, and then enduring that type of trauma at a young age, he came home and he could not, he could not adapt. He could not grasp, and he and I didn't know this part of the story until I watched the documentary, but he could not grasp reality. He was driven to psychosis. Right. And he could not grasp reality. And he eventually uh, died by suicide. He was murdered by the criminal legal system is what ultimately happened, because even within that, the police reports, I experience this all the time with my husband and even my uncle, who's also incarcerated. They lie. They falsify uh, the, the, the write ups, the tickets, as attorney Hugo Mack uh, mentioned earlier. They lie about things that happen when when Khalif attempted suicide because he did attempt suicide in solitary oh, yeah. confinement. They said that it wasn't an attempt to suicide, but it was a, a goal driven action. He took an action to receive a goal, right? So he was not given the medical attention that he needed, the psychological help that he needed, and the system failed him in multiple, multiple ways. Oh, one second, sorry. Um, the system failed him in so many different ways. So in my husband's case, yes, he took a plea deal uh, similar to Khalif. My husband also came from a small inner city uh, area where at a very young age, 14 years old, he had made some poor choices. He um, he was actually in jail for for another uh, inc incident, completely unrelated to the crime that we're fighting. 
And while he was in there, there was an eyewitness who intentionally identified my husband because they had they had beef, they had bad blood. Again, it's from a, a small town. They had some beef. He said, hey, I, I have information on a cold case. I know William Pennington. He was outside there that day. Uh, with that eyewitness statement or with that with that statement, they used that to basically uh, coerce my husband into to saying, you know, to taking a plea, not saying he was guilty, but taking a plea, which is also an admission of guilt. Right. They said, hey, we have this eyewitness saying that you were there. You already have these other uh, uh, cases pending against you. There is absolutely no way that you can make it out of this without doing anything less than life. So your best option is to take a plea deal. Right. And what most people do, I, I give just so much. Um, it's so commendable what Khalif was able to do throughout that three years and maintaining his innocence and refusing to take a plea deal because 97% of all cases in America result in plea deals because most people are just like, I want to go home. I just want to get this over with. And they take a plea. And that's what happened to my husband. He's like, they're telling him, at least if you take a plea, you can have an opportunity to get out um, in your thirties versus not taking a plea, going to trial, and then you never get out. <coughs> at 17 years old, 18 years old, at 18 years old, he opted out to take a plea. Right. And, and uh, one thing about Khalees' um, story that I also wanted to add, he was adopted. And it's a prison, um, the school-to-prison pipeline, because he was already being uh, watched from being adopted, then, you know, uh, they were surveilling him, you know, things he did in school. And so that whole dynamic creates the school, the prison pipeline. So that played a role in it as well. And then poverty shouldn't be a prison sentence, you know, because his family can't afford um, $3,000, you know, for a bill, which is um, out of the world for a book bag you know, a book bag and he had to pay $3,000. But another thing I took from it, and I want to read this because when I read this as looking up his story, I found out that, you know, I felt this was a really big thing as well. And it said, unfortunately, um, his mother um, died a year after him because of a broken heart resulting from um, uh, complications of a heart attack. Um, black women are often left to pick up the pieces and fight to reform a broken criminal justice system that ultimately breaks them. Black women, especially mothers, suffer long-term trauma after losing loved ones to police brutality, including men mental and health issues like depression, and physical challenges like heart attacks and strokes. We also seen this happen to Erica Garner, who died in 2017 of a heart attack at age 27 after years of activism because of her father was killed by the police. And black women <laughs> do take up the, you know, the banner and fight, you know, because of the system, how they perceive black men, mostly black men, but now more so black women also that 
um, number is picking up within the last 50 years of black women being incarcerated. So, you know, um, these things, you know, the system not only affects the person who is incarcerated, but it also plays a long term effect on the family, the mother, the parents, you know, it took uh, to 2019 for the um, New York to finally um, offer their family some com compensation for what happened to him. But that that doesn't bring back the mother, it doesn't bring back him. It did result in some changes where uh, Rikers Island supposedly is going to close down by 2027 and some um, bail reforms, I think, happened. Rabatia? Yeah, you know, um, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jay, because uh, when you see that he was involved and had to go to protective services, as a as a child and be involved with protective service that that's a whole that's a whole nother system and then being charged as an adult and do you know united states is the only country that continues to charge youth as adults worldwide that's how antiquated the system is and, and then and we're not looking to heal we're not looking to heal homes. We're not looking to heal the children who, who were already traumatized, already traumatized, already had to deal with a mom who was, he was already dealing with a mother who was addicted to drugs. And then now he has to go to prison and he was trying to hold on to his truth through all of that and then be re-traumatized again in the prison and those people who were hurting him they weren't they weren't just white people that's a consciousness yeah that's a mindset for you to for you to act that inhumane towards another person that's a mindset that's a mindset that was horrific that was horrific. And, and they got awarded, what, $3.3 million? Not enough. Right. Not enough. Not for just his life, but his mother's too. Well, yeah. the, it's never, it's never going to be enough to take back that trauma and to bring never. back the wife. And yeah, and I agree, never. $3 million isn't even near close to, to scratching the surface of being enough. That's right. Um, but I, I just, I, I love how you talked about the institutions and how they literally feed our children from institution from broken institution to broken institution to broke because they don't even get us started on child protective services right and and how broken and corrupt that institution is and then we have the school to prison pipeline right with our public school systems who's which is poorly poorly funded and you have a poorly funded school you have a poorly funded teacher staff you have poorly funded teachers you have poorly educated children then you have poorly educated children going out to a poorly um financed world and minimum wage and then they're only able to live in a public school district and it just continues to perpetuate this cycle of poverty of crime of all of these things that they continue to criminalize black before and 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 it's just it's one broken system that is just waiting to free our children to another system, which is the criminal justice system. And Reverend Tia, when the minds, let's be real, right? Certain type of people become law enforcement 
Certain type of people become uh, COs. It's a culture that is deeply rooted from the days that the first slave ship was brought over here to America. It is a culture that is rooted. And then when you have black people who adopt that culture of, of power, of uh, dehumanizing people because you are an inmate, you are a felon, you are not even worthy to eat good, suitable food. I can do whatever I want to you. I can release all of my angers and frustration on you. And it's a culture that's been created and perpetuated. And then also, you know, when we're talking about the school, the prison pipeline, if you can't read in third grade, you haven't, that's how they get their numbers. That's how they you know, um, figure out how much jail space that they need be, or prison space that they need because they feel like, hey, if you don't know how to read by third grade, then, hey, your only other choice is prison. So you have this kid, he's 16 years old, he gets wrongly identified, and then you put him on Rikers Island for three years, you know, for you give him an outrageous bail. And then you put them here and with all these adults and all this criminal mentality and he's fighting and he's abused the whole time he's dead. But to put somebody in isolation for what, that two years or over two years and then expect for him to finally come home and be okay with no tools, with no, you know, therapy, with no nothing. This is why we're in these situations. You know, they talk about, you know, you get, um, uh, when it's election time, they're always talking about tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime, but nobody ever talks about deterrence. What we can do to deter crime, to make, you know, people more um, able to work in society, to, you know, to take care of themselves. But we'll spend millions on facial recognition software. And we'll spend millions on all kinds of stuff to capture criminals instead of spending those same millions on creating better citizens. I see Baraka came in, hi. Hello, how are you all doing today? We're great, how about yourself? I'm doing great, I apologize. I, I took him, um, worked it today and then I took him, ran down the lance and take him, try to um, join up with the um, exonerees that um, gathered there in Lansing mm -hmm. with the family and friends and other supporters. And um, I, I showed up late. By the time I got there, some was leaving. Others were um, still um, there and then later took and gathered in a nearby park. And I spent time with them in the park. I'm literally just getting back. I got back and got my, um, my, my salad in and everything. And I jumped on this here. I see you had sent me a text a little earlier. <laughs> um, and it, it was interesting uh, to take and meet with some of them and speak to um, some of their family and friends and um, hear them, you know, explain why they were there in Lansing. Um, I took and remind them that they have an open invitation to take and reach out to you and that this format was actually designed for people who are equally and similarly situated as they are. And uh, for your um, listening audience, my name is Edward Sanders. I go by the name of Baraka. I myself am uh, someone who served 43 years in Michigan prisons. I went to prison at the age of 17, and I came home in 2017, just prior to my 60th birthday. I'm a recent graduate from the University of Michigan uh, uh, um, School of Social Work with a master's. 
Um, I'm also um, presently employed at um, the School of Information as a uh, research assistant at, um, here in Ann Arbor. And I'm a recent, as of yesterday, officially a member of the Detroit Justice Center uh, um, Board of Directors. So, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm constantly uh, involved in what's going on in regards to this population that is affected by the so-called criminal justice system, those that are um, still there and those who are coming home. And those who are coming home are not returning citizens. You do not return with your constitutional rights. So it is a miss, it's a misnomer, you know, um, it's, it's misinforming the public to refer to someone coming home from prison as a returning citizen. You do not come home as a returning citizen. Some members that will return home from prison cannot live in a, a public housing project. They cannot take and get uh, um, food stamps for food. They cannot take and um, get uh, um, decent employment. Some cannot take and get um, government grants for vocational or educational opportunities. That's not a returning citizen. A returning citizen returns with his or her constitutional rights. These men and women would never be able to even have a firearm to take and protect their home and their loved ones. They would never enjoy the Second Amendment again, and they will always take and just like the rest of the African-American population be violated in terms of their Fourth Amendment being constantly shut down and pulled over simply for being black. Okay, so that's not a returning citizen. Thank you. You're right. Uh, Attorney Hugo Mack, um, you do have to get your um, uh, rights restored, is that correct? After a certain amount of time? Oh, you're muted. Boy, I tell you, once again, technology follows with Hugo Mack. I apologize. Um, Michigan is one of the, oh, don't laugh, don't laugh. Michigan is one of the states where you don't have to petition in terms of your of your voting rights. So, you know, when when my penitentiary experience was was over with, you know, my I got my driver's license and registered, you know, all at the same time. So that's that's fortunate. Not every state is like that. You know, matter of fact, uh, a lot of the southern states uh, and, and I, I think Georgia is one of the worst, you know, where where they 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 don't want to restore your right. I think Florida too. come to think of it is a horrendous procedure you've got to go through to to try to get your voting rights back. So um, I just want to add to something that uh, Raka said in in Michigan. You will. You have a penitentiary experience. You'll never be able to sit on a jury, okay? And as I said before, one of the great hallmarks of equality in America is to be treated like other people. And I'm saying that to be able to sit on a jury is a fundamental expression of your ability to self-effectuate your intelligence, your pride, your commitment to the community by being able to sit on a jury. And I'm saying, uh, for me, that's been a tremendous sore spot because having been able to regain my law license after my penitentiary experience, I'm probably the only attorney in the state of Michigan that can pick on it, that can pick a jury, but I'll never be able to sit on one. <laughs> okay, so um, that is a, a cruel dynamic of what uh, Brother Sanders was talking about. I can relate that to me personally, 
because I will never be able to fully effectuate my citizenship rights. You know, I pay taxes like everybody else, subject to uh, 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 military service like anybody else, must abide by the laws like everybody else. But yet the fundamental rights that, that the average citizen takes for granted, and most people try to get out of jury duty, by the way. See, I'm, 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 I'm giving a permanent get out of jury duty, but for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. So um, th- these are the things that we have to keep fighting for and hopefully get some legislative change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, Barack, we were talking about um, the Khalif Buyer story and um, um, how he was 16 years old. I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but we were talking about um, he was 16 years old um, and the bail part of it. His mother um, couldn't afford the $3,000 bail. And that was a guilt thing that played hard on her, that she went to see him every single day. Hmm. And that had to be a lot to go. And I think it says in the story, it talks about how the long ride she had to take to go see her son every day um, 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 at the prison, at Rikers Island. That's That was like a long journey. So for this mother to uh, eventually, she died a year after he committed suicide. Um, she went through a lot on that journey with him. Yeah, and that's, that's a difficult thing to be in an adult um, facility at that young age. It's difficult to take and be incarcerated at any age. Um, having been incarcerated for 43 years, I've witnessed you know, um, firsthand what it's like for a person to adjust being caged, okay? It doesn't matter whether it's a child or an adult, but it's particularly difficult for a child to take and come into an adult facility. I can remember when I was in the Wayne County Jail. Here I was, 17 years old, and another kid was taken in place in the um, unit where I was on the rock. And I remember the, the depths asking, they, they unlocked it myself and asked me if I would go down to a cell that was farther down from me where they had just brought in a little younger um, kid. And they asked me if I would spend time at a cell. And I was like, I was curious, you know, hey, you open my cell to go down there. What's up with me going down there and talking to him? And they said, well, he's attempting to commit suicide and we need someone to take and confer with him. And I was the closest in proximity to his age, even though he looked at like he might have been three years younger than me, and I was 17. And I did go down there. He was a small guy. He was a little small, light-skinned African-American kid. I went down to his cell. Um, I spoke to him and everything. I took and tried to make sure I stayed my distance a little bit from the bars. I didn't want him to think that I was down there for some improper reason or anything, or to take and reveal the fact that a guard asked me to go down there and actually take and confer with him. Um, Ironically, by the time I got ready to leave prison, and that was in 1975, by the year 2016, around that time, or more or less, they had just started a program in, 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 in the MDOC where they allow fellow inmates to take and go down to the um, to the hold, to the to the adjustment center, what they call it, the adjustment center or segregation unit, to literally take and do exactly what I was doing some 40 years earlier. 
they just got around the idea that it actually brings the suicide rates down when you take and allow a person that is going through something while they're incarcerated to take and be able to confer, not with a jailer, not with a jailer, but with another person that is similarly situated as they are. So they're actually taking and certifying uh, um, other prisoners to take and work in the adjustment centers or in the hole now to take and abate the level of suicides, even though they're not getting credit. You probably heard this for the first time, but this is practice going on in Michigan prisons. And it's a good thing because the, the numbers of suicide is going down for those that are high uh, of potential for taking their lives while um, behind bars. And it's a good thing, but it's something that was way overdue. I couldn't personally get a position, and here I had an undergraduate degree in behavioral science. <laughs> you know, I, uh, my, my major in my undergrad is behavioral science, and I put in the application because I had first heard about it. I think they had first started the program at the women's prison. And I took and made a request to take and participate. And they said, oh, it hasn't come to the men's facility yet. But when it come here, we'll keep you in mind. And when it came, I continued to take and strive for it. But that was one of the absurd things that, that they do in prison. Those individuals that are in prison, just like you or Matt, here he is, attorney. But they would have, in many instances, they would have denied him an opportunity to work in the prison library because they don't want to dignify him in that role. They will get right. someone that is less competent and put in that role than before. And it's, it's intentional, is to deny him the dignity of taking and exercising his profession. I'm a, I'm a paralegal. I got a paralegal. Of certificate from Jackson Community College. But here I came home and couldn't even, I couldn't get a job as a notary public because I've been to prison before. Nothing to do with honesty, but I cannot become a notary public. I cannot sign a document and say that this person made this statement and I witnessed him or her make the statement, but yet I'm a paralegal. I can work for an attorney, you know, I can go out and do investigative work, but I could not take and you know, and I was like, okay, this is this is an easy thing for me. I live in, I was living in the Warrendale area. You got all these businesses. I thought I'd get me a, a, notary, a notary stamp and then take and pass out my thing to some of the shop owners and tell them, hey, you can call me up here anytime you got a customer. I'll come up and notarize their document. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, behold, when I went to take and uh, sign up for it, I realized I couldn't because I've been to prison. You know, I got a master's degree now, but I can't take and teach children through um, um, kindergarten through 12th grade, but I can teach adults in college and university. <laughs> you know, great lawmakers. And remember those Republicans and other conservatives that always talking about making government small and getting out our business? They're the main ones that's in your business. They're the main ones that's creating these kind of laws. But the Democrats do it right along with them. You know, the, the juvenile laws you're talking about, say hello to your beautiful Hillary Clinton. Say hello to your um, your beautiful um, uh, uh, Bill Clinton. Say hello to Biden. Yeah. You know, bill he bragged about, this is his crime bill. You know, so while you loving those Democrats, and when I'm telling my, my personal story, stay the hell out of my business. 
Stay the hell out of my business and let me tell my own story. Don't just talk to me about the boogeyman on the other side of the political aisle while I'm trying to tell you about my story. Shut up sometime and listen. Right. Shut up sometime because your people ain't angels. They dealt with too. Right. And, and, and what they do is they want to disempower you by controlling the narrative. Exactly. You try to tell right. them about the two parties that they got or the two individuals that they got. You know, like right now, I don't want the chief of police in Detroit to become the mayor of Detroit, but that don't mean because I don't want him that I'm endorsing the woman that's in there now that allowing people to take and die in Michigan prison. Right. Okay. She's responsible for that state violence. And that's what that is. That is state violence when you allow people behind bars to take and die for a pandemic that you can avoid. She thought that she would be a vice president. So she thought that it would be good to take and act like she was tough on crime. Well, that act cost the thousands of Michigan prisoners their health and their life. Yeah. Okay. So that's the act that she's playing while she took and threw Michigan prisoners a damn bar of soap. That's what she threw to them. Don't come to me asking me to support her for governor. Show I would take and say what I want to say about the uh, 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 police chief, but that don't mean in no damn way that I support her ass to take and be the governor. Democrats want no candidate, you better get a candidate because that's not your candidate. That's mm -hmm. not your candidate. And the, the and attorney general is not the candidate. She hasn't raised one argument about the conditions of, of doing this pandemic that people are behind bars, whether in the county jail or the state prison. She haven't raised any fuss about it. And you have had people die just days before they were paroled home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? So as far as I'm concerned, she can be she can be built shooting. She can be she can be <laughs> any of these other people, but she is not attorney general for all of the people of the state of Michigan. Right. Hasn't spoke up for those people behind bars. So no, um, just because I take and say something about a Republican, don't mean that I endorse your Democrat. Right. Stay the hell out of my story when I'm trying to get my story. You tell your story how you got your welfare or whatever, but you let me tell my story about how I didn't get my damn dignity, that I didn't get my citizenship back. So don't interfere with my story when I'm telling my story. You tell your story and let me tell mine. Remember that. You tell yours, I tell mine. Right. Because, you know, it's getting close to election time, so they're going to be trying to pull all kinds of rabbits out of the hat. Exactly. Um, where we were out last year protesting about the conditions um, inside the prisons and how many people were getting COVID and getting COVID again. Nobody was doing anything. They was mm -hmm. just saying, you know, um, giving us um, the... I, I mean, I wrote plenty of emails. I wrote so many emails. I was tired of writing emails to the governor and the attorney general and people up there. Nothing happened. We watched people die every day. And then um, finally, you know, um, I think they put together a task force or something, but nothing was really, really done. You know, nothing. Nothing was done. No, you know. And if I could just kind of land um, by telling black people to not be married to a particular party, Thank you. right? Um, me personally, I despise politics. I'm not political at all. However, 
I have been awakened to the to the I to the to the knowledge that everything is political. And we can't ignore that. You know, we got to understand that as much as we despise what's happening, we got to understand how to play chess and we got to understand how to move the pieces of the chessboard. So uh, like you said, sir, get somebody in there, plant the seeds and the people that can run uh, uh, for these offices that actually share the same values. Right. Because we have um, a black woman running for our mayor. And I actually do support her. I don't support all of her ideas, right? We have some we have some disagreements there. However, just because they're your skin folk don't make them your kin folk. Just mm -hmm. because you don't be married to the party because they are Democrats, because don't get us started on the political parties and where because when when Democrats and Republicans was first created, none of them was for black folks. We were still slaves. We were still slaves. The, the, the Democratic Party rebranded what they were about in the 60s and realize that they can get the black vote by by advertising the poor people that's all they don't care they have never cared so don't be married to the party focus on the person and making sure you get the right person um in office and and planting seeds and people to run for office because a lot of times we don't even have the options uh but i did i wanted to kind of i wanted to bring it back around to bail uh because i think that I think that a lot of people don't understand completely what bail is. Yeah. And in Ohio, um, we have not yet had a bail reform bill introduced. Um, it's, it's in the pipeline, though. Right. It's in the pipeline. I've heard it through Grapevine. It's in the pipeline for this bill, this bill to be introduced. So in Ohio, um, there's a lot of momentum around uh, bail reform, as it is across America, because as, as you say, it, uh, New York um, released, had a bail reform bill that passed through a few years ago. Illinois had a reform bill that passed through just a few months ago. I believe LA, maybe, I don't know. There's only a handful of states who have been able to pass bail reform bills. And I, I wanted to speak to why bail reform is so important, because as I've been speaking, I have, as I as I've spoke about earlier, in this in the program a part of my fight to exonerate my husband and challenge everything that led to his wrongful conviction and challenge everything that uh adds to mass incarceration a big part of that is that pre-trial portion of it right people not having access to be able to be free while they're going through their court proceeding so a lot of people don't understand what bail is and i get that question a lot well, why should i care about bail you know what i mean like our issue wasn't bail. Our issue was that he got sentenced to 20 something years. And then you have to um, kind of inform of even how that over sentencing takes place with people taking pleas. Right. The stats are that you are more likely to take a harsher sentence on your case if you are not released on bail. ACLU has released stats that says even three days in jail in the county jail has a tremendous effect on people's livelihood. People lose their job. People mm -hmm. lose their homes. People uh, miss medications. People are at risk of losing their children. So people are in a mental mindset to do whatever they need to do to get out of jail. Meaning I will take a plea for something that I did not do because it gives me the opportunity to either one, just have an end date. At least I know when I'm getting out or two, in some cases, you know, you're able to say, Hey, time served, you get probation, but now you have this, this record. 
for something that you didn't do. Uh, so the the plea deal is really, or I'm sorry, bail reform is super um, imperative that it does get passed because it gives people the actual ability to be able to bargain for their freedom. If mm -hmm. you're in jail, you're desperate. If you're in those four walls, you're desperate. You just want to get out. And that does not serve the community. There's a, there's a narrative that bail protects the community when in fact it doesn't because it, it, it hurts the community because now you have individuals who are missing rent payments. That is that that affects the homeowners, right? That affects the property taxes. That affects employers who are now losing their employees. So people are affected whether you are directly the one in jail or you're just somebody on the outside. And I think that's really important that we understand that um, as it pertains to this bail bail reform movement. And my charge to every single individual, whether you're watching this, uh, this uh, presentation right now or you just come across it, but my charge is to get involved with the movement. There's movements going on all across the country around bail reform, around qualified immunity um, abolishment, around mediator immunity abolishment. Get involved with an organization that is doing this work. I... I want to kind of share a little bit about um, going back to the plea deal and how those plea deals happen and how they connect to uh, bail mm -hmm. and how I even came into this. Right. Being a wrongful conviction advocate, my husband being in prison for something that he didn't do. I said, how can I prevent what happened to my husband from happening to anybody else? The number three reason for wrongful convictions is false confessions. A plea deal is a form of a false, false confession. Right. Plea deals are directly initiated and motivated by lack of access to bail. So that's where that line uh, connects. So if you want to start to eliminate wrongful convictions and the amount of people who are in prison for things that they didn't do, let's tackle that pretrial that pretrial portion of it, which is giving people access to bail, making sure people that are are allowed to um, have see a see a judge within forty eight hours, mm -hmm. right? There needs to be a forty eight hour window from the time that you are picked up to the time that you are in front of a judge and you are released. Going back to the Khalif Browder story, three doggone years. 30 court appearances and those court proceedings were content, continuously postponed. That is unacceptable for an individual to have their complete their life on hold. We live in a culture where people are pissed off if they're in a McDonald's line for more than 10 minutes. If I'm in McDonald's more than 10 minutes, I'm ready to raise holy hell. I want to talk to the manager. I want this person who are who's barely making a livable rage to be fired because I dare you interfere with my time in this fast food restaurant. So why are we allowing people, lives, husbands, mothers, sons to sit in prison for extended amount of times and lose their entire uh, livelihood? So my charge to people is just to get involved. Don't wait for the injustice to, to come knocking at your door. Get involved, tap into an organization, call your state le legislators, right? There's Call them. Their, their uh, information is public record. Send them emails. Let them know that, hey, you want to see bail reform. You want to see... Um you want to see uh, discovery reforms, right? There is there's a process that takes place during pretrial where the prosecutor is not required to hand over uh, any information to the defense about the accused, right? 
the prosecutor has all of this information from police investigations, police reports, everything. The prosecutor has this information and they are not required to pass that information over to the defense attorney until right before trial. So in the process that we are talking about these plea deals, the defense attorney has no clue what is going on outside of what their client is telling them. So they cannot properly defend and advocate for their client because they are in the blind. There are so many things that's taking place in that pre-trial window that leads to people being innocently locked up or even over-sentenced, right? Now, for every innocent person that's in prison, you have somebody who was actually potentially a threat to society walking free. So that is why it's important for everybody to get involved in this fight in some type of way. So you can get involved with the free Billy movement and what we are doing. We are currently in the middle of a very hard uh, bail campaign because like I say, we got we got some being introduced here, right? And, and we need to make sure this passes. We have no more time to waste um, on this. We have people like my husband, William Billy Pennington. We have people like Khalif Browder. We have people like, uh, oh my goodness, there's so many other people in Ohio. We have uh, Ruel Saylor. We have uh, uh, Christopher Smith. We have, and this is, this is in Ohio, right? We have, um, a young kid named uh, Dawson, last name Dawson. We have George Eddie Steiny Jr. There's there's so many different people throughout Ohio and America who have spent too much time in prison. We have Gerard. We have Gerard who was wrong, wrongfully in prison for uh for a number of years. Don't wait until it's your children to actually want right. to do something about it. Join yeah. somebody's movement right now. Right. Um, we can't we can't afford to just keep sitting down acting like we're oblivious to what's going on. We're seeing people coming out of prison 24, 30, 40 years for things they didn't do and for and no accountability. How do we just sit back and be like, oh, okay, and watch these things in front of our face and just be okay? Mm -hmm. Until it happens to you, then you, you know, you don't know what to do. We're trying to prevent that. That's why we come here. That's why we're having these conversations. That's why we're educating because we don't want people to wait any longer until it happens to you. Don't let your kid be the next kid, your husband be the next husband, your daughter be the next person. It goes to prison for things they didn't do, over sentence for something. You know, all of this mass incarceration that's tearing apart families, that's killing mothers early, daughters early. So, Baraka, you look like you wanted to say something. Yeah, and thank you very much. I appreciate what you all are saying. And, and, and um, Kayla made some excellent points. The most important things that can happen once you come involved in the criminal um, uh, um, legal system uh, process happens early on, okay? They happen early on. And um, when you want uh, uh, um, to lessen the damage or the harm that's done to the person that is accused, it's, it happens, it has to happen early on. Um, organizations like the Detroit Justice Center, the State Appellate Defender's Office, Michigan Liberation Organization and others, um, the ACLU and others, they have demystified this idea that bail is absolutely necessary to keep us safe. We just seen during this pandemic that that was a myth because people were let out all over the state of Michigan, all over the state of Michigan. And even though this Detroit police uh, uh, um, 
uh, um, captain or the head of the Detroit Police Department, even though when you had um, incidents of crime going up, he took and tried to throw them under the bus. He tried to claim that because of the activist success in getting people out, that the people who were committing these crimes were people that were getting out on bail. No, they wasn't. It wasn't, yeah. You know, there's no evidence to take and support that whatsoever. Okay, but this is part of the process, the propaganda that goes on that they constantly do to make us believe that what we need to do is what they recommend. They don't, hey, if he want to recommend something, he should speak to his own agency. He should speak to his own agency about arresting people without probable cause. Detroit leads the nation in arresting people without probable cause, arresting more people for a single homicide than any other um, place in the world, in the country. Okay, we have statistics where three, four, five people arrested for a single homicide, and, and there's no evidence that three, four, five people are committing a single homicide. These are witnesses to the homicide that are being arrested. Okay, this is the kind of behavior we have, and it's very important. When a person is charged with a crime, the earliest stage where the prosecutor begins his or her propaganda is at the bail hearing. They begin to take and demonize the person that early. And that demonization, even though, because they have a conflict of interest, the objective is, is to take and bias the person by having the person detained, as Taylor point out, so they can begin to squeeze the person to, to take and, and do their plea bargain. And they need to justify to the court why they have over-sentenced the person. They normally take, <clears throat> as part of a coerced plea deal, they normally take and do a, 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 a vertical a, a, a overcharge or a horizontal overcharge. And to justify that, they begin at the, at the, at the bail. They begin to take and say how bad this person is how dangerous this person is. When there's no bail, they don't get the opportunity to say that. That information will follow the person, not only to the, um, from the um, pre-trial to the sentencing, but even while the person is detained in the county jail, and if the person is subsequently convicted and sentenced and sent to the Department of Correction, it's even there when the person goes to the parole board five, 10, 15, 20 years later. Propaganda, exaggeration, yeah. just taking track. When the prosecutor only objective was was to take and help facilitate his or her plea bargain. But even after the person has served their time, they will be scrapped with whatever propaganda the prosecutor that laid down at that early proceedings. So she's correct that this there's no reason for it. You are citizen and a resident, and you should still maintain your right until you prove it guilty. So liberty should always, and this is a rule in a democratic society, that liberty is supposed to take and favor, it's supposed to favor the accused. It don't suppose the prejudice the accused. The court, in fact, tell a jury that this person is assumed to be innocent and to prove it guilty. Then we don't just want that as a theory. We don't want that as a hypothesis. We want it as a reality. We want it as a reality. We want the money. Don't give us the rhetoric. Rhetoric. We want the money. Show us the money. But unfortunately, 
that reality is only true for if you're rich and white. Because if you walk into any courthouse, it is filled with, filled with black, brown, and poor people exactly. in any courthouse. Absolutely. So yeah. just, you know, when we talk about how does things like this happen, going back to the politics, just understanding that it's about money and it's about money lining the pockets of the rich and wealthy. Right. right. Because this nation was built on slavery and this nation is still running off of slavery because slavery is still legal based off of the 13th Amendment. Right. So understanding that. They ain't made not one move without strategically understanding what every decision and every amendment and every law and every bill that they have put forth, understanding the repercussions of it and how to continue to keep this economic strategy going, mm -hmm. which is slavery, labor, um, free labor, free labor. Right. So that's why that type of thing happens. And to be and so and to be honest, and this is something that I, I just read recently, if every case went to trial, the criminal legal system will be collapsed because yeah. they don't have the money, the resources to to actually try every case. That's why they push so hard for the plea deal. That's why they push so hard for the plea deal, because they they cannot afford to send everybody to trial, meaning there is a an fish net of people that are going into the system and out of that fish net of people you better believe i, I believe what is it 15 percent are wrongfully incarcerated right are wrongfully right. convicted so we need to applaud those judges that heard the advocates voices at the detroit justice center and at um, state appellate defender's office and at the aclu when they play it to take with these judges to take and release these people from the county jail save their lives, that they wasn't um, sentenced to, to die in prison, that they were still citizens, they were still residents of this state. Those judges need to be applauded for, for hearing those voices. But in hearing those voices, they have also took and demystified the idea that everyone that is arrested is a danger to society. So we do need to applaud them because we didn't go through the process of taking the crime and convince the legislators. We took and actually spoke to judges that we take and elect in the local community, and they responded to our voices, and they helped save lives in doing that. It would be great, and, and it would support our movement to take and, and, and abolish the bail system, to take and probably show up at the courthouse and applaud them, to tell them, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for hearing us. You saved lives, and you did away with the myth that this is really necessary. So it would be great if we took a day out and said that to them. And because they have did a great, uh, they have did a great contribution to us going to the legislators now and saying, let's make this official. Let's make this official. Okay. Hey, so Jay Love, do you have the um the link that I sent you? Were you able to get that earlier? Uh I had to go in. But I did. <laughs> If not, yep, if not, that's fine. Um, I just want to give people kind of a few of my handles, which is um on Facebook, it's it's free Billy. Um, you're gonna type in free Billy or at free Billy, he's innocent. That is my Facebook handle. My Instagram handle is the same free at free Billy, he's innocent on Instagram. Um, email address is freebilly20 at gmail.com. Uh, mm -hmm. you guys can just you know reach out to me. There's a petition again, text free Billy one word to 66866, and that'll take you to the petition for you to sign the petition for Billy. 
And another action that I want to give people, I kind of touched on it a little earlier, is call your state since start call your current state uh, legislators and tell them some things that you want to see done. I know a lot of people who want to help, they want to be active, they just don't know where to start, or they feel completely like they're they're their voice isn't power enough, but I powerful enough. But I tell you what, you have more power than you realize when you use your voice, and you have a lot of power in your network that you might not even know was there. Mm-hmm. I was able to get the the personal cell phone number today of one of our uh, state legislators by making a few mm-hmm. phone calls, and I did not set yeah. out to get his number, but I made a few <laughs> phone calls, told him what I needed, what I was looking for, yeah. and it took me two or three phone calls, and I was able to get this yeah. person's cell phone yeah. number yeah. to start to make some things happen. So. A couple reforms that I want to put put out there that people could uh, to to eliminate what we are talking about right now, which is wrongful incarceration, mass incarceration, uh, the the legal system killing people by a- actually killing people or by pushing them to suicide. It's bail reform. Figure out who, what organizations are are making a heavy push on bail reform and get involved with that, or just call your local legis- legislators and tell them that you you know you you want to see some bail reform happen. Um, another thing is the, the discovery reform. As I mentioned earlier, the discovery reform. Yeah, the discovery reforms, making sure that that defense attorneys have access to the same information that the prosecutor has access to way before a plea deal is ever even presented. There needs to be discovery reforms. Um, conviction integrity units needs to be implemented implemented in every single county. There needs to be a conviction integrity unit to make sure every elected official is doing their job and that they are held accountable. Another one is uh, mediator immunity that completely needs to go away right because judges and every other elected official that are that's in that courthouse needs to be liable and responsible for the trauma that uh individual goes through especially if they're wrongfully incarcerated so those are a few things that you guys can look up educate yourself on and uh call your local uh representatives or senators to let them know that these are some of the things that you want to see happen in your area all right i want to go to uh attorney hugo matt um, attorney Hugo Matt, it was it's been a lot that's been said. And um as we talk about um um bail and how um even Khalif um Browder's case, how he had to keep going back and forth for 30 different times. Um what do you see in the system that could be changed or I mean like some of the suggestions that Taylor brought up? Can you speak? On well, that? yeah, let me let me speak about Michigan. OK, okay. and then specifically Washington County. OK, OK, because, you know, uh, macro change is wonderful. Reforming the whole system is wonderful. Micro change is just as wonderful. OK, so we, we could start by changing the system where we're at. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let that be example. So so, for example, in in, in Washington County, as soon as an attorney files an appearance for someone, they have an automatic right to get that police report immediately, okay? Um, immediately being as quickly as a prosecutor's office can, can process it. Um, with me, I've gotten police reports on an average no more than three days, which is good, which is good. Because the, the, the thing of it is, the way the system in Michigan is set up, is first of all, the person has got the arraignment. In, in Washtenaw County, and it's going statewide now, 
when when you're let's say arrested, all right, and then you're you're arraigned. Normally, it's with Zoom. In Washtenaw County now, they have to have a public defender there if you don't have money for an attorney. So in other words, when you're being informed of what the charges are against you, you have counsel the very moment you start seeing a judge. It wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. So those are that that's one thing that's that's very good where a person in Washtenaw County, you never see a judge by yourself. All right. You never see one. If you can't afford an attorney, one is appointed for you. So the other thing that's good, as I said, as soon as an attorney is appointed or you retain an attorney, uh, you have an automatic right to get that 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 police report before a probable cause conference occurs. And th there's no plea agreement that will occur before a probable cause conference or a pretrial in the state of Michigan. All right. So the way we and, and I'm very mindful of the things that people are saying, because these things happen all over all over the country. But I can say in Washtenaw County, it's more progressive than, than in other areas in terms of, of, of protecting people. With the prosecutor that has been elected, although he was a, uh, an opponent of mine, as, as everybody knows, uh, we have perhaps some different policy um, initiatives. But I do applaud him for wanting to address the bail system head on. OK, you know, and basically they're not uh, requesting bail. Like I said, I. I, I don't know if I agree with some of the intricacies of it, but I agree with the principle of it in making bail more fair uh, for, for folks. So, um, and, and as you know, in Michigan, individuals that are incarcerated are put to the top of the list under the court rules for, for having trials, okay? So a criminal case will always take precedence over a civil case, all right? So um, we, we do have some things in the court rules that are designed to help us. But we do need bail reform. We do need reform in terms of immunity for police. And I just I just want to address this momentarily, Jay Love, if you don't mind. I don't um, mind. One of the arguments, one of the arguments against changing qualified immunity is that we cannot afford to have police officers in court addressing every time someone says that they stepped outside the law. Well, my answer to that is to the public, when you've got like the Detroit, you know, I mean, the, the Detroit Police Department paying millions, millions of dollars, okay, okay, in, 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 in harassment, in police misconduct cases, I, my, my message to the public is those officers are not serving you. They aren't serving you because you, you're the one paying for their misconduct. So you're not paying their salary, their pension, their vacation, their dental, their ability to, to go to school and have you foot the bill. You're not paying them for them to charge million, have you pay millions of dollars because they want to slam somebody's head upside a police car. OK, you aren't paying them for that. So if you're not paying them for that, why are you willing to foot the bill for them? OK, when they slam somebody's head up against a police car wrongfully, why aren't you making them pay for that? Okay, and 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 have the specter of that of that of that liability. So you know you know Jay Love. Perhaps one time on a on another show, I've taken to writing uh, a qualified immunity bill. You know, which which protects everybody and gives people the right to hold police officers accountable. You see, so it it's not rocket science. It's just that people do not have the political will to do it. 
All right. And this thing with Tim Scott, I'm going to say this and I'm going to get off this soapbox with Tim Scott, you know, trying to work with some of the Democrats and what have you. To me, this is a fallacy because the reality of it is when it comes down to addressing qualified immunity, they're not going to make significant change. Tim Scott is not talking about that. OK, they'll dance all the way around the issue, but 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 they're not talking about it. And that's that Senate Bill one, I believe it is SB one or mm -hmm. House Bill one. OK, so in any event, I'm saying let's work locally to try and address these prosecutors and these judges to make uh, micro reform while we're trying to get the whole system changed. But it starts with one step locally, in my opinion. I agree. You know, our politics is local. So we have to start locally because that is what affects us the most. Um, right. and, and, and once we get that done, we can encourage um, the state, I mean, not the government to do right by us because this is what we're doing in this state. Reverend Tia? Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, we got to know that at any given point in time in most states, we have approximately 450,000 people waiting for a trial or waiting to be seen. And I think we need to put some dollars behind this. We need to, we need to let them see, you know, this, first of all, they don't have really the capacity to treat people in a humane way in the prison system anyway. You go to some of these jails, I mean, and even before COVID-19, even before COVID, they, they, you know, when you go to places where there's, there's feces and that the plumbing is, is terrible, you know, so we can't, you know, and, and they'll put a dollar amount, but we're feeding and we're clothing you and this is what we're doing while you're in prison. And you got all these people who are in prison wrongfully convicted. And, you know, you're, it's still a waste of money. Uh, what we're dealing with is, again, a way of treating people that America has been used to. And at some point, we, we got we to stop analyzing. See, they wanted to analyze uh, Khalif. They said he had depression. You know, we're so quick to analyze the people who have been, who have been traumatized. But we won't analyze, I, I want to analyze the mindset of the person who is prejudiced, the mindset of the person who wants to take a, a, a person and slam them on the ground and slam their body against a, a police officer's car. I want to look at the mindset of the individual who can hate somebody to the point where they want to shoot them. Because they're because of the color of their skin. At some point, we need to redirect the story so that it's like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. What's wrong right. with you? That's right. That's exactly right. That's that, right. That's insane. It's insane. And if we don't get a, a diagnosis for that, that needs to be in the DSM. <laughs> you know, right. where so where. You, you are so unfit mentally that not only should you not have a gun, but you should not be driving a vehicle <laughs> because you're insane. So if you, can't, if you can't have a gun and you can't drive a vehicle, then you definitely cannot be a police officer. 
That's right. That's right. We gotta change it. Yes. Thank you, Robert Tia. You're right. Change the narrative. Change the narrative. Yeah, we've been so conditioned and so oppressed that we just, you know, give in to our own demise. Well, we can change the narrative, change how we tell the story, change how we look at it. Like you said, switch it around. Um, what's wrong with you? <laughs> if you That's right. To a, a human person, where's your humanity? You know, that's the that's where we have to come from. We have to that's start right. questioning them. Make right, make them have the diagnosis. <laughs> right, yeah. we can save our kids. You know that he was sixteen years old. He was still a kid. You know, mentally, physically, and spiritually. So you're right, uh, Reverend T. I absolutely agree with you. Change the whole dynamic. Well, you guys, this has been awesome. Um, uh, Taylor, I thank you for um, coming on. I know you're doing a lot of work out there in Lima, Ohio. Um, you got some kind of listening thing going on or community um, conversation? Yeah, that was actually last Saturday. That okay. was last Saturday. Um, and kind of just going back to what you guys were talking about is that local local effort, putting in that local work, right, and organizing, just fun fundamentally getting uh, the power of the people in the community and bringing people together to be able to have that power. You know what I mean? Like you get the power and those those elected officials, they're going to come to you. Right. You don't have to go asking and they're going to come to you because you have the power. So that's what the um, last week's listening session was about. Uh, we had done a series because we just came off of a primary uh, for our mayor, mayoral uh, candidacy. Um, so a lot of, you know, forums was taking place uh, around that. And there was a lot of, you know, candidates, you know, it's a campaign going on. So there's a lot going on around that. So after the primary, I said, OK, we've heard from the elected officials. You hear from the advocates you hear from me you hear you know what my my passion in, is around criminal justice criminal uh, justice reform we want to hear from the community we want you guys to talk and tell us what's on your mind how do you feel what's important to you what matters to you you know what I mean so that we can begin to actually first of all identify the problems so we can analyze the problems so that we can address these issues with our elected officials and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that we can begin to come up with some uh, collective uh, solutions. So that's that was the listening session that we had last week. Uh, currently, what we are, what we have going on is uh, we have a letter writing campaign happening for my husband. Uh, we are writing his appeals uh, judge um, that is on the the free Billy Facebook page. So you can just go there. You can just get the template or you can uh, get the address and you can write something authentic, just a few lines, you know, just saying that you support William Pennington getting a, a new trial, you know, so, um, or a trial because he never had a, an original trial. So, you know, just something simple saying that, um, what else do we have working on? Like I said, we have the, the, the bail reform campaign. We just had our Mother's Day bailout, which I, I won't say that it wasn't a success. Uh, we were not able to identify a woman to bail out. Every woman in the Allen County Jail had a bail that was $100,000 or higher. Mm. 
we did not have those funds. Uh, so what we did was we um, we took a few families and we paid for them to have their their video visits because right now every all the visits are happening virtually and you have to pay for them. So we paid for some video visits to take place and we're still working on bailing out mothers, fathers, men, women. It doesn't even matter at this point. Let our people go. So we're just you know bailing out people and I'm um, trying to identify some people that we can afford to bail, bail out because like I say, the average of that we had come across was a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Wow. A hundred thousand dollars. So and that's that's why we're having these conversations. And that's why we're coming to because we need to change our mindsets of you know how we think now about the criminal justice system is what was taught to us. But we had to rethink the criminal justice system. We had to rethink how we do justice, how we do prisons. We have to rethink that re, um, and set a new vision for it and a new purpose for why we're doing it. I mean, even as I've been studying stuff, you look at Norway and different other countries, they do prison totally different. They educate. When you come home, you have something to come home to. You have a skill, you have you know, your humanity and everything, they prepare you for coming home. So we have to rethink because what we're doing is, is unhealthy and it's harmful. Someone, thank you guys. Baraka, did you have anything you wanted to leave us with? I want to suggest that um, we take and um, look at guilty pleas um, in terms of um, being suspect. We do that in the case of individuals who are convicted without attorney. We value the quality of representation of attorneys in the criminal justice process. And we take and look at it. If a person is properly represented by attorneys, we give it some credibility. But people who are forced to take and plead guilty, when we consider the large number, anywhere from 74, I mean, excuse me, 94 to 97% of the people in this country uh, found um, uh, uh, adjudicated by way of guilty plea. 94 to uh, 97 percent. Mm -hmm. We should look at that as being suspect. Okay, this is something we should begin to take an advocate for as, as, as social advocates. We should begin to take and say that we as a public do not accept these convictions as, as being uh, um, valid. Okay. Right. And and, 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 and and this will play a very large role in helping taking and reforming or bringing about some abolition work in terms of doing away with this plea bargain system. Yeah. We want to take and see where when people are charged with a crime, that is not necessary that we are told on the evening news that the person has been charged with nine offenses. It's good enough that you charge the person with a single offense. We want you to take and simply charge the person with what he or she did. We don't want you to take and look at all of the creative ways that you can bring about the charge because all you're telling us is, which we should be listening, that you are taking away this person's right to take and be able to stand trial and have a fair opportunity to take and defend him or herself against the charges that are brought. Those charges will also take and deny that person's right to a bail, okay? Because when you talk about bringing those many charges, you are setting the judge up to take and put a bail on that person that is absorbed. Okay. Right. 
So we have to begin to take and say, hey, these guilty pleas are not valid. We won't when a person take and plead guilty. We will, if, if the plea is a valid plea, then we should look at that as the person being contrite. If the person is contrite, then we're saying that all that's left to do is to take and, and, and to restore the, 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 the victim to his or her rightful place and to make sure that you are taken care of in terms of not being a continuous threat to society. But we're going beyond that. We continue to perpetuate punishment because we really don't believe in this guilty plea system that we have. And this is why the parole board is spending so much damn time, even after you have served time for two, three, four decades talking about the crime. If you plead a guilty, why in the hell do I have to have a discussion about a crime 40 years later? We should be talking about the efforts that I have or haven't made to become a better person to enter back into society. Right. Your questioning at the time of a parole board hearing, 20 years after the fact, is a validation that those guilty pleas are not valid. Right. That wasn't an act of being contrite. And you, I haven't, I haven't took and accepted my responsibility. Is what you said at the time of the parole board, and is that you haven't accepted my taking and claiming responsibility. So it's a fraud. We need to take and set the field in a way that it has dignity and it means something not only to the person that is involved, but even the professional. It's telling them that this is all a facade. You know, this is how we deal with this in the end. So right. my position on that, and I would encourage that. But yes, the guilt, uh, 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 we, we have five organizations here in Michigan that are, are, are advocating for um, abolition of the bail bond system, and they are in need of volunteers. The, the uh, Michigan Liberation Organization, they come up with cash, in addition to grant money, they raise money to bail people out, and and they sometimes hire people to do that. And other times, they also need volunteers. Mm -hmm. And have the Detroit Justice Center. They do a darn good job of coming up with money to take and bail people out. And they also hire. Mm -hmm. They also need people to take and volunteer to take and do this. So these are organizations that are involved. And taking and bailing people out and in utilizing uh, on volunteers for these services. They call them bail busters. Okay. So you don't have to come up with the money. And when it comes down to recidivism, the people who are committing recidivism are the very ones that should never have been placed in the county jail in the first place. They are formal, listen, listen, they are formal, not formal, but they are veterans. These are the people that are being placed in the county jail and not given their medication while they're in the county jail. And then when they are released, because the lack of medical care that put them in the place at the first instance caused them to come back. And the same thing is true for those who are suffering from mental, from bad mental hygiene, in addition to our soldiers that are placed in these predicaments. Those are the ones that are pushing up the recidivism. They don't tell you that because they want you to believe they just make reference to the crime. They're not telling you about the person because if they told you about the person, you would begin to question why are we taking and arresting our veterans? 
why are why didn't he or she go to a, 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 a mental uh, facility to have their real issues taken care of? And why didn't he take a person that has suffered all his or her life from uh, um, from some type of uh, um, psychosis? Why are we putting them in the county jail? Those are the ones that are committing recidivism because they should never be placed in that situation in the first place. All right. Thank you, Baraka. Um, we we at our time. <laughs> so we're, uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, you guys know that um, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love, respect, and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Thank you for joining us. You guys have an awesome weekend. Um, like everyone has said, get into the movement. There is so many um, groups that need your help. Free Billy Movement, the Justice for Derived Movement, Michigan Liberations, um, the ACLU, the Detroit Justice Center, uh, um, out there with uh, Attorney Hugo Matt. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's some um, organizations. Find something that is um, that you uh, feel uh, compelled with, um, something that you feel um, that you can um, find purpose in, and join a group and help. Uh, it takes all of us working together um, to um, make change. We it's, it's not one person. We all going to have to join in and make this change happen. So I love you guys. Thank you. I'll see you guys next week. And Taylor, I'll see you soon again. Um, goodbye, everyone. It's been good to see you, man. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your input. Thank you. God bless, Taylor. Appreciate you. All right. All right. I appreciate you. Bye-bye, okay. Taylor. I appreciate Bye. you. Bye. <laughs>